because I really believe in it. I think that's part right. of it too. It's it's a missionary sort of thing. It's almost religious when you get into a, a kind of work that you really believe is to, is helpful to people. Then you want to promote it. At least that's what's happened to me. Hi there. Welcome to this MindRamp podcast. I'm your host, Michael C. Patterson, CEO of MindRamp Coaching and Consulting. And today, I am talking with renowned art therapist, author, and educational filmmaker, Dr. Judith Rubin. Judy is a pioneer in the field of art therapy. She's written numerous books on art therapy, and after her experience as the art lady on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Judy began making educational films. Judy is a past president and honorary life member of the American Art Therapy Association. She also served on the board of the National Committee, Arts for the Handicapped, and the Task Force on the Arts for the President's Commission on Mental Health. Since retiring from clinical practice, she has devoted her energies to creating and disseminating films on arts and therapy through a nonprofit organization called Expressive Media. What is art therapy? How do, what are the basic principles of it? One of the things you talked about is you're, you were working with children who had severe problems. Is art therapy always in order to solve a problem or can it be more generalized? Oh, I think there's a whole spectrum of applications, perhaps going from serious, perhaps intractable problems that people have to learn to live with, like, for example, being blind or deaf, which mm -hmm. can't be modified in and of itself, but one can learn to adjust to and make the best of one's circumstances to relatively healthy people of any age who simply want to feel better about themselves or have better relationships with others. So it's an intentional use of art with as good an understanding of psychology and psychotherapy as the person has of art. And putting those two together is what makes a well-trained and effective art therapist. There are many people offering art to people in situations of pain in particular, like in refugee camps, for example, mm -hmm. who are not trained as therapists, but are providing what is essentially a very therapeutic activity. It is helpful for children who are dealing with bombs dropping all around them to be able to draw pictures about right. it and talk about the pictures and the experiences. So the provision of therapeutic art activities certainly isn't limited to those with master's or doctorate degrees. But if you're working with somebody, for example, with dissociative identity disorder, which is multiple personality disorder, mm. very difficult to work with. You really have to know what you're doing because people are vulnerable. And art is extremely powerful. And as is often said in our field, cuts through defenses. So you need to have enough preparation to be able to help the person or persons to deal with whatever gets stimulated that could be anxiety provoking. Where does that power come from, do you think? Why is it able to touch people in ways that other things can't? <laughs> well, you're asking me to an answer you in words, and I'm half joking, but the reason is <laughs> that you can't put it into words. And right. that's that's why it's so helpful, I think. It, there are so many feelings and experiences, memories that are 
in the body. That's more obvious traumatic memories, but there are also image memories mm-hmm. of a traumatic experience. Let's say, say a childhood repressed trauma, repressed meaning it's not available to conscious memory, but they're stored internally. That much we do know. And right. they're stored not in words, but they're stored in images, they're stored in parts of the body. There may be movements. You talked about somatic. So that's why the arts are powerful, yeah. because they, they get past verbalization as the only way to communicate and allow people to express things that are basically beyond words. So is it not only that they're expressing it, but they're recognizing it in themselves in the first place? I guess it's the basic psychoanalytic idea that if you can take repressed feelings and bring them out into the open, then you can begin to work with them. Is that that, that would certainly be a good description of sort of classic psychoanalysis. But even people who are not psychoanalytic, like uh, Linda Gant and Lou Tinnen, mm-hmm. an art therapist, psychiatrist couple developed a brilliant technique for working with trauma based on their theoretical understanding of the nature of the trauma response Mm -hmm. in which they've been able to help people. Part of it does use art. And the art part is interesting because memories, when when you're looking for buried memories, Lou used um, hypnosis and sodium pentothal, other ways of speeding up the retrieval of memories. They don't come up in sequence. They come up in bits and pieces. And the art part is creating a visual narrative, a storyboard, so to speak, and putting the parts of a traumatic event in order and then understanding when it happened and why it happened and that it's not happening anymore. It's incredibly powerful. So in that technique, whoever they're working with would create a sequence of paintings or a series of paintings. And then would the therapist actually sit down and create an order out of the uh, the painting so that you can yes. see a sequence? Oh, fascinating. Or drawings because they'd be right. faster than paintings. But we have one um, in the streaming film library that I've recently created a very nice example of Linda Gant working with a woman with this kind of disorder I mentioned looking at her drawings and put trying to, oh, I just remembered something else that happened. And where would that go? And so they go back and forth. It's a, it's a co-constructed process, but it's not classical analytic. In fact, there's so much variety now in psychotherapy, which I think is helpful and healthy. And this particular methodology works best if it's done in very brief, but intensive therapy mm. where somebody comes and works all day for five days in a row, either individually and or in groups. That And I think that's part of why it, it is so powerful also, because the focus is on the issues as opposed to the once a week or even twice a week model. But anyway, um, the, the graphic narrative is a major component of, I think, the effectiveness of this particular approach. And there are many, many, many creative ways of incorporating art into psychotherapy. But I think the power is because it it can get to things that cannot be put into words, really. Let me uh, dive down into a couple of things you said, because it gets at big, grand questions about art. What is art? Where does it come from? Your example of stencils as, you know, an approach, or paint by numbers, or making um, potholders, I think intuitively we feel that that's not art. 
Why is that not art? It's not evil. <laughs> no, it's not evil, but but we don't consider it art. I'm, I'm, where's the divining line yeah. for you? I think it's a craft, uh, obviously. Certainly mm-hmm. the potholders, any kind of weaving, it's a kind of weaving. I have nothing against crafts. In fact, I think they're wonderful. One of the nice things that's happened mm-hmm. in my lifetime is that many crafts have been revived that had almost gone away right. in communities. But something like paint by numbers, where the person who's using it doesn't have any opportunity to do anything other than perhaps choose the color, if that option is available, although it isn't always. It's anti what I think is so essential about art, which is that it is an expression of the individual, again, regardless of which art form you're talking about, whether it's performance or composing. It's still a very individual sort of expression. And when you box somebody in, that's one aspect. And the other, um, uh, you know, pouring clay into molds was very popular in in the school for then called crippled children, uh, orthopedically handicapped, the school for the blind, school for the deaf, where I was involved in starting programs. And these were thought of as methods that would yield success. And they do yield success of a sort. That is, it's a you can't fail if you're pouring clay into a mold to produce <laughs> something that fits the mold. <laughs> but, and the same thing with paint by number. On the other hand, what are you saying to the person about their capacities? Right. In a way, you're you're implying or inferring that they couldn't create something themselves. And in my experience, regardless of where the person is on the intellectual spectrum and regardless of the age or disability, anything created by an individual that feels like their own makes them feel better about themselves. They may be critical of it. They may right. you know, want to modify it, but it's, it's them. It makes a huge difference in self-esteem. I tend to think of art as an evolved developmental urge within us, you know, that we are created because it helps us to develop our capacity as human beings. Does that resonate with you? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think you do a lot of thinking with your hands, with mm-hmm. your eyes, with your body that can't be put into words. It just is not translatable. I was just talking to a friend of mine named Greg Finch, who has studied somatics, which I had never heard of, but it's, you know, just what you were talking about. It's it's sort of the science of how we embody our thoughts and our feelings and our ideas. And so like when we were talking about emotions, well, where are you feeling that in the body and how is that being expressed uh, physically? So. so many experiences and expressions can be better understood and articulated in another modality. And the arts have done that as long as we have records. The last time we spoke, the first, our sort of introductory conversation, I think you were about to go off to join the the Neuro Arts Blueprint meeting. You were one of the pioneers in the whole field of art therapy. There weren't very many people doing it when you started out. And now the emergence of the neuro arts blueprint seems like it's a it's a big leap forward for the field. Do you, do you agree? And what, what's your reaction to the to this development? Um, it's good. Yeah. We've, we've always had our brains. We haven't always <laughs> known exactly 
how and why the arts are so effective. Right. We've known that they're effective. And now that there are better imaging techniques, which keep improving every day, we can look at what's going on in the mind physiologically electrochemically, however you want to describe it, and see what's happening that explains these good feelings that people have when they create art and also when they look at or receive art. And that's true for all of the arts, not just the visual arts. There's pretty good research. Gene Cohen was one of the first to demonstrate it very dramatically in older people who simply did better over time with fewer medications, fewer doctor visits. I mean, nice, concrete, observable, measurable changes when they had activities, not necessarily provided by a therapist, but activities in art or music or dance right. or drama. So there's, there's a lot of evidence that it helps. But now we're starting to hopefully see some of the neurological reasons that explain, as I said, the good feelings that people have. Uh, so I think it's a wonderful development. It, it's very broad. It doesn't just apply to the arts as therapy, but the arts as helpful and healing don't simply reside in the psychotherapy basket. They really, as you said, apply across the board in our society. You are listening to a discussion with Judith Rubin, a pioneer in the field of art therapy. This is the Mind Ramp podcast that I'm your host, Michael C. Patterson. Toward the end of the discussion, I shifted gears and asked Judy to talk about her own aging process. How is she dealing with advanced age? I haven't really asked how to craft a good longevity. Like, what are your, <laughs> what are your secrets? You you seem to be doing quite well, and your your husband is is ninety two. You said, and he's apparently doing quite well. What's the secret to keeping your your mind active and alive? I think uh, for him, he does the crossword puzzle, and he works out, and he loves gardening, um, and he's fortunate. His balance and eyesight are better than mine, and. So I can't drive anymore and I have to use a walker, but I can still get around enough to be able to, for example, attend a grandchild's uh, graduation recital last week in Rochester. I think keeping your mind active, doing, doing things that you enjoy that are creative, that's what's helped me. I think, you know, creating films, creating events, teaching others, hanging out with my grandchildren who are all in their 20s now, but that. They're very nice people, being with old friends, enjoying the arts. But I think staying staying intellectually and creatively active is a big part. You're using the word creative, and that's that's been an undercurrent in what we've been talking about. When I was with the National Center for Creative Aging, we worked mostly with professional artists who were doing work with older adults. So there was a big emphasis on the arts, which was great. But I was always sort of there saying there are other ways to be creative, you know, than than the arts. And we should not ignore that, um, which kind of gets into the question of what does it mean to be creative? Well, I think there are many, many, many ways in which people can be creative from mm-hmm. cooking to gardening to right. sewing to, you know, any of the crafts. 
Is it a constant challenge or you talked about curiosity? You remain. Yeah, I think curiosity helps. (laughs) Being curious and wanting to learn and um, liking people probably helps in enjoying interacting with people of different age groups or different cultures. I'm going to talk to a lady from Mongolia on Monday. Oh, she wants to start art therapy and I want to help her because I really believe in it. I think that's part of it too. It's, it's a missionary sort of thing. It's almost religious when you get into a, a kind of work that you really believe is to, is helpful to people. Then you want to promote it. At least that's what's happened to me. So it's been a very gratifying field, and I think continuing to be active in it has kept me a little younger mentally, maybe uh, than I would have been otherwise. Yeah, we talk about the importance of meaning and and purpose and that certainly seems to be what you're you know but the religious zeal is is this <laughs> it's an interesting framework but we but, have to believe in it really well yeah yeah it must be sad if you feel like you you go through life and you have absolutely no impact on anything or i think we all want to make the world a better place we want to have some kind of a positive impact uh, and so finding ways to do that is uh, it seems pretty important You mentioned that you're focusing on people in what I consider the last lap of life. Uh-huh. And the thing I find myself thinking more than anything nowadays, as I hear every day about somebody I know who's either very ill or dying or has died, is that I just hope I have enough time to finish most of the things I really want to accomplish. <laughs> Do you have a bucket list? Do you have a, a list of things you want to do, or is it uh, just sort of? I think you know I, the bucket list idea. I think I've been very fortunate to to go many many places, visit lots of countries, and enjoy traveling. Um, yeah, seeing, doing things, you know, places that are beautiful in this country or around the world, uh, learning about other cultures. So I don't actually have a need to go any do any more travel. Because yeah. I've done a lot, so uh, my I, I wouldn't. I don't know if it's a bucket list, but it's a it's a wish list of what I'd like to accomplish. Like I'd like to get the whole library up there. Right. I realized when I said bucket list that that it leads you off in a different direction. That a guy that I've been working with recently, Chris Palmer, uh, creates a mission statement for himself, a longevity mission statement, and uh-huh. like I think I have so many years left. Here's what I want to accomplish. These are the things, you know, and it's so it's not like, oh, I, sh- I want to visit Italy or, you know, it's, it's more. Yeah. No, it it's, relates back closer to, I think, your 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 religious fervor. What are the <laughs> what, what is it that drives you and what do you feel is unfinished or what are the what are the areas that you want to still want to explore that you're still curious about? Um I realize the thing I didn't ask you about was that, but you sort of brought it up is this, we're getting closer to death. Mm-hmm. Does art therapy, can you use art therapy to, to deal with people's fears of death and, and relationship to death? Sure. Why not? I guess it. Yeah. 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 I think that, you know, it's an area that my husband and I talk about and think about a lot, how to yeah. prepare. Of course, we all wish that it happens in a less painless, right. uh, less painful or dramatic way. But uh, yeah, what would be your ideal death? 
<laughs> I think to avoid severe pain right. and, and uh, illness, I suppose, uh, and to be able to say goodbye to everybody I love. You want to die at home? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, to have, if I haven't accomplished everything I wish I could, to make sure that somebody is going to take care of it, that whatever seems important to me, there's someone who I trust to carry it on. Succession planning, as they say. <laughs> well, also, it's your legacy. I mean, you have created a legacy with your films, for one thing, that they will live on in, in physical reality, but also in as much as you pioneered a movement and, you know, had a profound influence on training people and getting the field, you know, up and running. I think there's a legacy that will live on, you know, that you could be proud of. I think I've done, I feel very lucky. I yeah. feel I've been a lucky person. I've lived a lucky life. I've accidentally found work that suited me to a T, something I'm still passionate about. I've met so many wonderful people in the course of it. That's been a large part of the gratification. And uh, and I can promote things I strongly believe in, um, which, you know, are more maybe socially relevant. You can do work that's consistent with your values. Yes. A, a gift when we can do that. So, yeah, I think I've been very lucky and it, it's been a good run. And, <laughs> and I hope the ending is soft. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> Well, may we all have a good ride and a soft landing. It's a great way to define our word qualongevity, which MindRamp uses to define our mission. Living long and living well. Longevity plus quality of life. So thanks so much to Judy Rubin for generously sharing her insights and her wisdom with us. If you want to learn more about Judy's ongoing work, check out her website at www.expressivemedia.org And you can learn more about MindRamp's work developing programs and approaches to creative aging by going to our website at www.mindramp.org Take care of yourself, take care of your loved ones and your community, and take care of the planet that sustains the only kind of life we know. <laughs>